Thank you, worship team, for your practice and faithful leadership and hiding behind some of our stuff back there. We've got Corey on the, I believe it's the djembe, adding to worship, so thanks for adding and serving. If you uh, would like to be a part of the worship team or since God uh, directing you towards that, talk to Pastor Sam, always looking for people that can use the gifts and talents God has given them to help us lead worship. Um, so talk to Pastor Sam if that is you. Boys and girls, today you are staying in the sanctuary. There is no children's church. It's the first Sunday of the month. So I'm going to try to do better. I was uh, rebuked, would be the way to put it, last week by our third through or fourth through sixth graders that I failed you guys, so I'm now making my public confession to you. I failed to give you box number three and box number four last week. Okay? I let you down. I should have preached longer. In all reality, they were in my notes. They're highlighted in bright blue each and every week. Yellow are my notes for the screens. Blue are my notes for you, and I just skipped over the blue. I have no clue what happened. It was a failure. Please forgive me, and I will make better efforts today. I have actually written beside the blue ink today to make sure that I give you your boxes one through four. So, boys and girls that are new or don't know what I'm talking about in here, there's a sheet on the way outside. You can go grab one from the foyer. If you are sixth grade or under and you do your best at those four boxes, there is typically a treat for you in the sanctuary. So if you forgot it or you need some crayons or something like that, there's some out there, including some fresh crayons out there this morning. So this morning we're going to be in Judges chapter 10 and 11, looking at a offensive leader who gets offended and who is offensive. Today's sermon is not be like this guy, okay? Today's sermon is not focusing on being like the hero, and I'm even hesitant to call him a hero, but I will do so. If you're using the Pew Bible, page 249, Judges chapter 10, if you're new to reading the Bible, I'd encourage you, follow along either in this sermon or maybe reading in the Gospel of Matthew, starting in Matthew chapter 1, and trying to read some of the Bible each day, asking questions of those that invited you or of me or somebody else on our church staff. We'd love to come alongside you as you read through the Bible or reading through the plan that's in your bulletin each and every week. In Judges chapter 10, we're going to pick up, starting in verse 6, and we're going to see a new leader arise. Last week, we talked about Abimelech, who was a bad leader and a broken leader, and how things have really shifted from some reasonable leaders with some weaknesses earlier in the book of Judges to it's just getting worse throughout the book, and Jephthah is worse. But I'll get it you into a highlight for next week as we look ahead. We're going to talk about one of the strongest and weakest people in all of the Bible next week as we talk about Samson, whose great strength is surpassed by his great weakness next week in Samson. All right, Judges chapter 10, verse 6. Follow along as I read, and then we'll stop and we'll pause and we'll talk about what's happening. But this week, we're going to see that a person's 
fruitfulness and success is not a guarantee that they got it right. It's easy in our culture to fall prey to pragmatism, which means if it works, do it. Okay, and that measures results only, what brings results, what practically works. And churches can be guilty of that. Workplaces can be guilty of that. Families can be guilty of that. And at times, we see in the Bible that things work on the surface but are broken into pieces underneath the surface at the heart level. And that's what we have today with Jephthah is a guy who got the job done but was not successful before God. He was fruitful without being faithful. And I want to ask you as people of God to try to avoid being an offended or offensive leader, avoid measuring results as if results are all that matter, and as if fruitfulness and faithfulness do not matter to the Lord. We want to be a faithful and fruitful church by God's will and in our own lives. Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The people of Israel, again, all right, I'm going to read this part, and then I need you guys to say your part here. We've done this before, all right? People of Israel, and then you're going to say that word there, okay? And we've, we've done this before. The people of Israel, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, did what was evil. That is the book of Judges, and that is life today. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight. Notice it's not in their own sight. That's going to start coming up more and more as we go through the book of Judges. They're going to do what's right in their own eyes, but not in the eyes of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. They served every god but God. Okay, there's a bunch of other gods listed there, and that's what they were busy doing, but not serving the Lord. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the hands of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that, the Lord, so that Israel was severely distressed. Okay, they've been serving every god but the Lord. Satan has blinded their eyes, as he does non-believers today, to the idolatry and the foolishness of it. There's language here in these verses, verses 7 through 9, about all the difficulties they face. It's getting worse, it's spreading out, and their sin seems to be getting worse and worse. Verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we've sinned against you. We have forsaken our God, and we've served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did not I save you from the Egyptians, from the Amorites, the Ammonites, and the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you? And you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will have you no more. That is a surprise. 
God calls them and says, hey, I delivered you from all of these gods that you're serving, all of these wicked people, and you're just busy with them again. You're calling, I'm not answering this time. Okay, there seems, I want to come back and talk about that in just a minute when it seems to be contrasted with the way that God is going to answer them later in this passage. But this time, God says, you called, I'm not really answering. I'm just going to point out to you the foolishness of your past. I'm going to point out to you that you're in a bad situation of your own doing, and I'm not helping right now. Go and cry out to the gods, verse 14. Go cry out to the ones you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. They were so important to you to worship now, worship previously, why can't you worship now? Like, they were the ones that you were giving everything to, why aren't you getting anything from them? Oh, foolish people, you are reaping what you are sowing, just... Go give some more to those false gods and see how that goes for you. He's helping them think, reflect, and prayerfully to repent. The people of verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. They said that earlier. We've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. They put away, verse 16, the foreign gods from them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of, of Israel. I want to note a few things here. They seem to temporarily repent, in this case, getting rid of their idolatrous gods and crying out to God, now God, do what is best to you. That seems to be the change here from God, we want you to deliver us, help us, restore us to success, to God, do what seems good to you. They, it seems it from verse 10, were crying out to God to only do what they wanted God to do for them. And by verse 15, there seems to be a posture of surrender rather than a desire for God to grant them things. In verse 10, I think it seems like they were saying, and other commentators were saying this version, God, we made a mistake. And that mistake's resulted in really, really big trouble. And we don't like the really, really big trouble. We want the good stuff in life. Things aren't good for us right now. Get us out of this trouble and help us to have the good life. God, we really want the good life. And you might be better at giving us the good life than the other gods were. Because the other gods haven't given us the good life. So now it's time for God number eight, you are God number eight, to give us the good life. We need the good life. They probably even were a lot like some of us making a deal with God, deal in quotes. God, this time, if you'll just help me get what I want out of this job or this family situation, if you'll just do what I want you to do, then, God, I'll do this for you. Okay? Most of us in the room, at some point in life, have probably tried to play, let's make a deal with God. God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll show up in church. God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll read my Bible more. God, if you'll just get me out of this mess I've made, then I will. And Jephthah makes that rash vow to the Lord. The reality is, when we're making those supposed deals with God, we reveal that what we want the most is not actually God. I'm indebted to Tim Keller's commentary on this. Keller notes that when we say that to God, what we really want is something else. 
When we say to God, if you'll give me this special something, what we actually worship is not God, it is the thing that we want God to give us. What we're really saying is, God, my God is actually this special something. It's prosperity, it's success, it's health, it's a kid that does this, it's a spouse, it is all of these things. It's a time on the beach. It is this stuff that our functional God is not the Lord. We're just using God to get our little g God. And for them, it appears early on that their little g God, that they really wanted the big g God to give them, was the good life. So also the question we need to be asking ourselves, not asking of our neighbors, but asking of ourselves is, are we using God to get what we want? Or are we worshiping God for who he is and what he's done? It's a deeper question. Question for us to ask ourselves. Are we worshiping the Lord and serving him? Or are we just using him? And where you have used God to get what you actually have been worshiping in the past or in the present, confess that to him. He already knows it. Like a little boy coming up to his mom after he's gotten in trouble or wants something, Mom, you're so beautiful. I've got these flowers for you. I cleaned my room. I even put all of my laundry in the laundry bins. What do you want? God already knows what you want. You're not tricking him by playing let's make a deal with God to get what you really want. Verse 15 and 16, they seem to have temporarily gotten the point. I say temporarily because things do not continue well for very long. And the end of verse 16 says they put away, served the Lord, and... God became impatient over their misery. God was not so motivated by their repentance that he was forced to work on their behalf. God just got tired of things not going well for them. It was not that their behavior merited God's deliverance. I need you to recognize that if you've been using God, that your posture back to God needs to be one of God, I got it wrong, and then God doesn't look at you and say, prove it by sacrificing, obeying, giving to the church, showing up for VBS or anything else. God doesn't make you earn your standing before him and his deliverance on your behalf. He expects a posture of repentance, confession, and does desire to change us, but God does not look at them and say, ah, now I'm going to work and deliver you because you repented. Your repentance does not merit and earn God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness and deliverance of us is because of his choice, his mercy, and his grace, not because we did enough good to cancel out the bad or even that our repentance earns it. God looks at them and says their misery and has, they're miserable and he has compassion upon them. 
So also, God sent Jesus that we, dead in sin, incapable of doing right before God, making up for our past, who are prone to wander, who are often forgetting and using God, could be forgiven and brought into a right relationship with him, not because our repentance earned it, but because of his grace. I need you to see the picture of God's grace from page to page in the scriptures, not just in the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament and the God of the book of Judges is every bit as gracious as God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. Because it's the same God and his character has not changed. Verse 17. The Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He will be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Okay, the Ammonites decide to attack the people of Gilead. Gilead needs a warrior. They're either going to make him their leader. Instead of turning to the Lord here, immediately after God has misery on them and they repent, instead of saying, God, Please help us with this situation. We're going to make you our king when you deliver us. They're like, hey, send us a person. We're going to make them in charge. Okay? All right, boys and girls, I haven't forgotten you. I haven't even gotten to that blue part of my page yet. It's coming up in just a minute. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. His, Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Gilead is both a person and a city or an area named after him. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. So we're introduced to Jephthah. We're noted that he's from Gilead. His father hadn't been faithful. His siblings didn't like him. They cast him out, and he surrounds himself with a group of outcasts doing no good most of the time. All right, organized war breaks out, and now they're like, we need a warrior. This seems like the guy. Always been a problem. We need him. All right, boys and girls, box one. I need you to draw the people of the city talking to a pirate. Because essentially, Jephthah was a pirate, but he was like a land pirate, not a sea pirate. So if you want to draw him as like a mob boss or a gang leader, you can do that. But it's easiest to kind of, to me, to think of him as a pirate. So whether he has a patch or whatever, I don't know. All right. Jephthah, the pirate. The people are talking to a pirate now to deliver them. And here's how the conversation goes. Verse 6. They said to Jephthah, Come out, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Okay? There's a little 
relationship between the way in which Jephthah talks to the people of the city who had rejected him until they needed him and then makes them reaffirm that they're actually going to serve him with the same way that God rejects, shows the rejection of his people and their relationship with him and makes them reaffirm that they're going to serve him. It's a marvelous little way in which the writer here shows that the people were treating Jephthah like they had treated the Lord. Except Jephthah is not at all like the Lord in his brokenness. Okay? There's ways in which they had rejected him. Only he could deliver them at this point. But God's character is not like Jephthah's dark side. People of Gilead made a deal with the crime boss, the pirate. And God is not a pirate with the dark side. Okay? I'm going to summarize verses 12 through 18 for us. We're going to skip down to verse 29. In 12 through 18, Jephthah sends a letter to the Ammonites, talks to them about history, ways in which they shouldn't fight. He pursues diplomacy. He writes a marvelous letter, reflects upon some things, and the people are like, eh. You know, the time for letters is past. Let's fight. So, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead, Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah and Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. You see that language, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And you, you want to think, now's the time. He's about to go to battle. Like, God's Spirit is helping him. This is really good. He's got everything he needs. It's going to be awesome. He's going to do like Samson without the tragic weakness. And then we see there's this interruption to the story. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And he said, if you'll give the Ammonites into my hand, if you will just do this for me, God, I'll give you whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites. It shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah, what are you thinking? Okay. Jephthah was not thinking that the first thing to come out of his house when he returns home is going to be a caterpillar. He probably wasn't thinking the first thing to come out of his house was going to be a cat, okay? Not even a dog or chicken. Like, what did Jephthah actually think was going to be the first thing that came out of his house to greet him when he got home? Well, we're going to have to find out in a few minutes what that is, but most likely a person. And he's promising, God, I'm going to commit human sacrifice to show you how dedicated I am to you. Okay, it if you're reading like through the pages of the Bible and, and you remember that God is not honored by human sacrifice, that that's what all the pagan nations did, you're like, Jephthah, what on earth? Like, why are you trying to get extra power from God by doing things that offend God? And it's a reminder that Jephthah is not a hero for us to imitate. Jephthah is not doing the right thing here. He's trying to bribe God. He's trying to say, God, if you'll just do this for me, I'll do this for you. And by the way, this is not how you negotiate with God. God is not interested in negotiations with you. God does not negotiate. He asks for surrender. And not surrender under your negotiated terms. God is interested in complete and total surrender. Boys and girls, in box two, this is a complicated one, but I think you can do it. You're going to divide your box in half, and you're going to put two people talking at a table, negotiating, like some of you do with your parents over how many of your vegetables you're going to eat. Okay? God is not interested in negotiating with people. 
Okay, so you're going to draw people, two people talking across the table. And then you're going to cross that one out once you get done with it. And then on the other side, you're going to walk, you're going to draw somebody coming out with their hands up as a display of surrender. Because that is what God is interested in from us, is a posture of surrender where we let go of our arms, let go of everything else. We don't negotiate with God, we surrender to him. Jephthah was trying to negotiate with God in a bad way at that. I'll get God on my side if I give him something from my life, as if God actually needed something. And God didn't even want that. If God, if you'll give me victory, I'll give you more money. I'll show up at church more often. God, I'll kill whatever comes out of my house. Please, Jephthah, know the God that you are serving. But he'd been corrupted by his culture into believing false things about God. We are today also corrupted by our culture that tells us that God wants us happy doing whatever we want and that he has no standards for what is right and wrong. That is not the pages of the Bible and what the Bible tells us about God. God calls right, right, and wrong, wrong. And though people in our culture do what is right in their sight, God still calls those things wrong. So we don't negotiate with God, particularly on the basis of things that God already calls wrong. Verse 32. Jephthah has been copying the pagan practices of his culture. He promises and tries to bribe God with the wrong thing. The battle happens. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. The Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Meneth, 20 cities as far as Abel, Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. It's a wins a battle, and instead of a joyous victory scene, notice the victory scene that does play out. Verse 34, he came to his house at Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. What a coward of a man. His daughter comes out running to celebrate God bringing deliverance, and he looks at her and says, you have brought me trouble. We're going to see in a couple of weeks at the end of the book of Judges the way in which women were not valued at all in their day. And we're going to see that there's not all that much change in our day. But what a coward, terrible father who looks at her and says, it's all your fault for coming out to see me when I got home. It's not my fault for making a rash, foolish vow before God that I'm now going to keep because I'm a man of my word. And the rest of the chapter seems to play out. There's some discussion on it, but most commentators say that he carried out his vow and committed child sacrifice in the name of serving God. And it is offensive 
It is destructive. It is not God-honoring, and it did not please the Lord then or today when we do not worship him as he has commanded us to. He says, I said it, I'm going to do it. Some people are like that. Don't be a foolish Jephthah. Don't first try to bribe God in the wrong way, or bribe him, period. And if you've said something foolish, admit it, and don't do something more foolish because you said you would. Okay? There's a difference in being a person of your word and committing further sin by fulfilling your word. Let me give you an example. Okay? Boys and girls, if I were to tell you right now, I'm going to take this blue magical piece of candy and I'm going to throw it all the way back there to somebody standing in the back and they're going to catch it. And if they don't, I'm going to give you all a dollar. If I were to do that and this thing doesn't make it back there, what should I do? give you all a dollar by the way what a foolish thing to say like what do i gain if i actually do that like if i do that and manage to throw it back there what are you guys going to do like i didn't make you promise to give me anything all i did was say something really foolish like hey i'm going to give you all a dollar if i can't throw this to the back and let somebody catch it what a foolish thing to say our culture is filled with foolish people who say foolish words but what if i said to you i'm going to throw it all the way back there and somebody's going to catch it if they don't i'm going to punch my sister Well, I don't have a sister, so that helps. But what if I did? Okay? Should I punch my sister when it doesn't get back there? But I said I would do it. So what does God want me to do after I've committed one foolish sin by making a foolish promise that I had nothing to gain and everything to lose? Does he want me to honor my word by going and punching my sister? I don't think so. Okay? We are to be people whose yes means yes and no means no. But rather than committing two sins, the sin of commission of such violence, of something that is directly against what God has said, in addition to the foolishness of what we originally said, if you've made a dumb, foolish, and I use that intentionally, promise, don't try to preserve your reputation and your honor and being a person of your word because I said it, I'm going to do it. doesn't matter how much it hurts me or hurts others. Repent. And yeah, people aren't going to trust you. If I said that and failed to do it, you guys wouldn't trust me. Better to not trust somebody than for them to do great violence and harm at the expense of their reputation. Instead of being like Jephthah and saying things rashly and foolishly, we ought to pray as the psalmist does in Psalm 141.3, God put a trap over my lips and set a guard over my mouth. It's easy to make foolish promises, most of which are trivial. I'll throw this back there, uh, somebody will catch it and I'll give you candy. God wants our yes to be yes and our no to be no and us to be truthful and trustworthy. But if you've made a foolish, harmful promise, like he did. Don't preserve your reputation. Walk to the Lord and admit it. Chapter 12 begins. I'm going to read these couple of verses, and then we're going to summarize and make some application for the day. 
the men of Ephraim were called to arms. Okay, the battle is won, and Ephraim is another tribe. Okay, they were called to arms. They crossed to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over against the Ammonites and not call us to fight with you? We're going to burn your house over. We're going to burn you and your house. You didn't call us to battle. And Jephthah's like, uh, yeah, actually I did. Verse 2, Jephthah said to them, I and my people, we had a great dispute. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. When I saw that you would not save me, I took my life and my hand into my hand. I crossed over to the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why have you come up to me this day to fight against you? This is very similar, by the way, to the way that some previous leaders had dealt with things, and they actually did so through diplomacy and avoided the battle to some degree. But things are getting worse and worse and worse in the pages of Judges. And the, the conversation that Jephthah now has as an offensive leader who is a hothead does not go well. Instead of avoiding battle with this other tribe, they're going to battle against each other. All because somebody was offended because they didn't get invited to the spoils of war without doing the actual battle of the war. Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead. He fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead, Jephthah and his troops, struck Ephraim because they said, you're fugitives. They offended them. They called them names. You're fugitives, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men said to him, are you an Ephraimite? Because they look similar, but they sounded different. Notice this. He said, no. So they said to him, that's fine. Say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would seize him and slaughter him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. We have descended into a civil war marked by how people say words. Boys and girls, box three, draw a big family battling with each other. We got a medium scale civil war between two tribes now. Remember, in Judges, things are getting bad to worse. When Gideon, when offended by an offended tribe, consulted him, he appeased them, and civil wars avoided. But Gideon got personally offended, takes out two cities. All right, Jephthah is more offended, and he takes out and fights against an entire tribe. 42,000 people die, and the way that they were marking is how people pronounce the word shibboleth or sibboleth. If you didn't pronounce it right, you are dead. Jephthah was easily, and those people were easily offended. Just as the Ammonite king was not persuaded by logic, they were hotheads, and they wanted to fight, and they wiped people out. Here is that pattern of book of Judges. Earlier in the book of Judges, the pattern was a deliverer would arise, and there would be rest in the land. Now the battle against the Ammonites is over, but there is no rest and peace in the land because the people are fighting with each other. Previously, there would be a judge, he would deliver, there would be rest for a time period. Now they just fight with each other. An offensive leader tried to bribe God, who was chosen by the people for fruitfulness instead of his faithfulness. Now they're inheriting the consequences of their poor choice with war occurring between the tribes when they easily get offended. So here's a couple of application points. I hope you've already seen where they're going and that none of them are a surprise to you. One, don't be easily offended and stubbornly hold a grudge. Some cultures cherish 
this. Some people brag about how they kept their word no matter what it costs. Some people brag about how tough they are because when somebody offends them, they don't just get even, they get ahead. Don't be easily offended. Don't be holding on to a grudge. Listen, there was a season in our house several years ago when one of our children, if they heard us give a compliment to another child in the house, I like that shirt. You must not like mine. You didn't say that you like my shirt. You said you like their shirt. How dare you? You're so rude to me. You must not love me. Don't be easily offended. Thankfully, that stage isn't present anymore, but so also in churches. Some people are easily offended. That pastor must not like us because he only talks to the boys and girls in the room in the sermon. He never says to the people between 5'8 and 5'10, 57 and a half years old, he hasn't addressed me, he must not like me. Don't be easily offended and hold a grudge. Instead, be eager to forgive, not easily offended. We need to ask God to help us not be easily offended. Ask God to help us forgive where we need to forgive. To go in grace to help people know where they've offended us and need where they need to grow, but also where we just need to forgive and move on. We need to spend more time asking God to help us be peacemakers than talking to other people about how others have upset us. Not those people. Listen, when somebody upsets us, our tendency can easily be to go to a different person and say, can you believe they did this to me and said this about me and they ignored me or they didn't do this for me? Let's be a people who go to God and ask God to help us have peace and the unity and love that should mark the church as Jesus prayed about in John 17. Let's not be easily offended. Let's calmly and graciously talk with each other after talking to the Lord instead of being like Jephthah and the people of Ephraim who battle each other. Secondly, another don't. Don't make foolish promises and don't keep sinful promises. We've already covered it, but I want to remind you again, be careful about what you say you're going to do, and if you've said something foolish and simply sinful, don't be doubly foolish by doing it to protect your reputation. But as a warning, because we all need these warnings, because it might come around, some of you are like, well, wait a minute. Like, I promised to pay the bank my mortgage, but banks are greedy, and greed is a sin. In fact, God lists that as something he hates, so I probably shouldn't pay the bank my mortgage back with interest because God hates greed. No, if the heart is deceptive, desperately wicked, who can know it? The Lord, through his Spirit, can point out that sin. Do not use this as an excuse not to do what you ought to be doing. Don't let Satan trick you into abusing this point. This text reminds us not to care more about our reputation word than what is right before God and others. Jephthah cared more about, I said it, I'll do it, than he did people, and in this case, his own daughter. He didn't even know the true character of God in the first place, by the way. Thirdly, don't assume that fruitfulness is a sign of faithfulness, or that because it worked, that it's what God wanted. This can be a personal temptation for us all when things are going well, thinking it must be right, our behavior must be right before God. It can be a temptation for us about church things. And it might be the case that when more people and more money and more good things seem to be happening, that's because churches are doing what is right, and we are doing what is right, but it also could be what is wrong. Boys and girls, box four, okay? First, you're going to be like, probably going to be like, why am I drawing this? I need you to draw a pirate with his sword out who has a lot of fruit. Whatever fruit you want it to be, that's fine. And then beside that, 
I need to draw a farmer who has a lot of fruit. What am I having you draw? I'm having you see visually that there are different ways to get a lot of fruit, one of which honors God and the other did not. The pirate Jephthah was fruitful but not faithful. So also, having a lot of good results does not mean you have done what is good before God. Don't try to use God to get God to do what you want most. Don't try to use God to get what you want most. This is from earlier. We talked about this earlier. They said, deliver us, we'll serve you. Jephthah's, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this for you. What they wanted most was not God, it was stuff and prestige. They were using God to further their idolatry. That can be true of us. But we need to ask God in his spirit to search our hearts and show that in our past or present. Repent of those times. Surrender to God. Remember, God isn't interested in negotiating with us. He doesn't sit across the table talking to us. Well, if you'll just do a few of these green beans, then we can make a deal. God wants surrender, not negotiation. Fifthly, do worship. Do worship and serve God while remembering what he has already done. They began as God called them out. He said, I delivered you. I rescued you. I saved you from all of these gods and all of these futile ways of living. They failed to remember and put into action what God had commanded of them, and they fell prey to idolatry, not serving the Lord. Their failure to remember and worship led to their service of the wrong thing. So also, we have much to remember in God's deliverance of us through a deliverer who desires to be our king, who desires to be in total control of our life. You see, though Jephthah was an outcast, as a hothead, Jesus was also a man acquainted with sorrow and grief, an outcast from many in society, but used by God for our deliverance, who is not a hothead, who is an offensive leader when offended, but when we offend him, offers his forgiveness, his mercy and grace. Not that we might prove ourselves to him. Remember back in 1016, they did not prove and merit God's compassion. Instead, God looked upon their misery as he looked upon our misery and our sin and sent a deliverer who desires to be our king and is a rightful, good king. So we say to him, God, I remember what you have done for me at the cross and your past faithfulness. So God, I commit anew to worship and serve. It's surrendering all to the Lord. If you need to talk with me, I'll be available in the back to pray with you about anything, including talking with me about trusting Christ as your Savior for the first time, following Him on believer's baptism, or any other way I can talk and pray and encourage with you. But we're going to now rise, stand, and sing, hopefully remembering and surrendering to Him in light of what He has done.